Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Mark Sisson on October 14, 2021. Mark is a professor of film, television, and media arts at Southwestern College in Chula Vista, California. He holds a Master of Fine Arts degree from the University of California, Los Angeles, School of Theater, Film, and Television. After working in the film industry in Los Angeles for 10 years, he went to Papua New Guinea for 11 years, where he worked as a director of educational television in the Department of Education. He produced a number of educational and documentary films in support of projects sponsored by the UN. Mark's father was a Baha'i, so I asked Mark what his father's spiritual journey was that led him to the Baha'i faith. Well, the spiritual journey was quite a long one, as I understand it. You know, my father was born in 1910 in Greenwood, Mississippi. As you can imagine, 1910 in Mississippi was an entirely different universe than what it is today, and surely quite different from the world that I live in. He joined the military back in early 1930s, principally, as I understand it, as he would describe it to us, that was his ticket out of the South and out of Jim Crow South, to be specific. At that time, of course, the United States wasn't anticipating being involved in any war. The South, as you know, is the Bible Belt of the U.S. It was then as it is now. His mother died shortly after childbirth. He was raised by his aunt. I think it was Pentecostal that he had been raised in. If it wasn't Pentecostal, it was that elk of Christianity. From his childhood, he really was on a search, I think, for truth. And he really had a, a strong desire for justice and fairness and something that was not part of his, his life experience in, in the South. So I think given the circumstances of his life, the challenges of his life, he was already on a path really searching for truth, searching for justice, true justice, and really searching for answers about God's purpose for man. He was thrust in the midst of the war, so he was in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and was in the various theaters of battle in the Pacific throughout the war. I even have in my presence a recording of him. Back in those days, of course, they didn't have the digital technology that we have today. And so he recorded on albums, on 33s, his voice and his messages to my mom and to my elder brothers. I have five older brothers. And at that time, my brother Gayloid and my brother James, I think my brother Michael were born at that point. But anyway, he sent these messages from somewhere in the Pacific during the war that I still have to this day, which is wonderful and, and very precious to the family. 
So I know from his stories that in that process, you know, he had a real deep belief in, you know, the oneness of mankind. And although he only had, he started school when he was 10 and it wasn't until, I don't even think he went and finished high school before he went into the the war. So he was a self-made man. He was a self-educated man. And and he really poured himself into trying to understand the world that he lived in. And in the process of all of this, and perhaps what indeed motivated him most, was his own spiritual journey, his own spiritual quest, and understanding himself and understanding the world that he was part of. It was shortly after the war. He was in Hawaii. He was stationed in Hawaii. He was on his way home from work on the base. He was sitting on a bus, and in front of him were a couple of men having a conversation. And this conversation was an elevated one. It was one that really intrigued him. They were talking about this concept of the oneness of mankind and that all the religions of the world really are one and have a a common purpose and that there's only one God, and this God might have a name different from the God of someone else, but is actually the same God, whether it was Jehovah or Yahweh or God or Allah, that these were names trying to describe the indescribable. Man's effort to try to understand what man cannot understand. And so he was really intrigued by this conversation, And so when one of the individuals got up and left and got off the bus, my father got up and sat down next (laughs) to the man who was actually doing most of the talking. And the man said, oh, can I help you? And he says, yeah, I just want to hear you talk and just keep talking. (laughs) And so he shared with him the message of the Baha'i faith. The way he describes it, he says, he didn't remember. He said he felt like he just floated off the bus. He has no memory of actually stepping down off the bus. And he found himself home. And he said to my mom, I've just come across something too rich for the average man. And so that began his quest specifically to learn more about the Baha'i faith. It wasn't until he was stationed in San Diego about a, a year or two later, that he was able to really begin to explore more deeply. He met the Baha'i community of San Diego. So this was back in like 1954 and began to learn more about the Baha'i faith. Immediately fell in love, not only with the principles of the faith, but with the person of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. That's where his journey continued until his death in 1998. What was your mother's reaction to your father coming home and starting to investigate the Baha'i faith? That's a great question. She was born in 1910, but was raised in St. Louis and came from a very strong Catholic background. And as you can imagine, back in those days, for a Catholic to marry outside of their faith was sacrilegious. It was unacceptable. And I don't know for sure, but my sense is that they must have eloped because she got married in Washington. And as far as I know, none of her 
family was there. They got married at a Catholic church in Washington. So how they were able to maneuver that, I'm not entirely certain. But she remained close to her family and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot that I don't know. Maybe it'd be interesting to hear what my brothers know about that. But her reaction specifically to the faith was, I think, skeptical at the beginning. And maybe she didn't take it very seriously at the beginning. But I do remember, because I was born in 1956, so this is a few years after my father had encountered the faith. And we all, all of his sons went to Catholic school. We still went to church. All of us were baptized, etc. I remember my uncles being perhaps the most involved in my life at that time than ever before. And at one point, one of my uncles and my aunt flew out from St. Louis to confront my father and to convince him to return to the church. The priest would come by our home and spend time with us as kids. For me, it was really wonderful. There was a Father Brockhouse who was very tall and he I would play basketball with us, and I just thought it was the greatest thing, not realizing years later that this was his mm. attempt to really keep the family within the flock, within the church, and to convince my father to return to the church. My father welcomed his visits, enjoyed them immensely, because it gave him the opportunity to share more about the teachings of Baha'u'llah and the teachings of the Baha'i faith. My mom you know, wasn't thrilled. And it was a challenge for the family. I think the early days of his being a Baha'i were challenging. But my dad was a wise man, so he didn't insist on any one of his sons or his wife to embrace the faith. He continued to go to church with us. We thought of ourselves as Catholics. My mother was very, very involved in the church. She would go to the rectory and you know, wash the clothes of the priests and clean their homes. Uh, she always lit candles for us. And so my sense is that she thought of herself as a Catholic and was going to remain a Catholic. But she couldn't help but notice how the Baha'i faith was changing my father. And the people, of course, that she was meeting who were Baha'is, who would come and visit, were so kind and loving and, and were so diverse and so accepting of her, and none of them ever insisting on her becoming a Baha'i or, or never challenging, which was not what she experienced with many of her friends who were Catholic, who didn't know anything about the Baha'i faith, but a lot of not-so-nice things to say about it. And she started seeing this difference, not only in the behavior of my father and my the lifestyle of my dad, but she just saw these concepts and principles of the faith being expressed in the people that she was meeting. So over many years and gradually, she came to recognize the Baha'i faith as a wonderful religion, and eventually that Baha'u'llah was the promised one of this age. Actually, she had a dream one evening I was sitting in the kitchen and my dad was outside in the garden, working in the garden. She comes running into the kitchen. I was with a friend of mine who was visiting. And she says, Mark, I have to declare, I have to become a Baha'i. 
tonight. I said, what's happened? She had been resting in her room just minutes earlier. And she said, I had a dream. And in the dream, a voice spoke to me. And the voice said, you are living in the time of the end. Declare your faith in me. And she woke up. She came in. She says, I have to become a Baha'i now. So I was just thunderstruck, needless to say. And so I ran outside. My dad I said, Dad, something's wrong with mom. <laughs> he wants to become a Baha'i. And he's like, what? And he comes running into the kitchen with his boots on, full of mud, bringing all the mud in with him, standing there. And he says, what's happening, Mary? And she tells him, you know, that she had this dream. So she declared that night, and nine months later, she passed away. Wow. She passed away in her sleep. It was unexpected. It was after she passed away that I realized the significance of that dream and how important it was for her. So she had actually become a Baha'i, embraced the faith, but it was a much longer journey for her than it was for my father. So how old were you? at that time when your mother accepted the Baha'i faith? So I was 19 at that time. I had become a Baha'i myself at the age of 16, but it was a year earlier than that that I had come to actually accept the faith as my own. So you were basically being raised by your mother as Catholic, right? Yeah, my mother and father both raised us. Even after my father became a Baha'i, he continued to raise us as Catholics. We went to, as I mentioned, church on Sundays. He would be with us. We went to Catholic school up until a certain point, and then we started going to public school. That was more because of just the expense of putting six boys through private school back in those days. So yeah, we were kind of raised as Catholics, but we were familiar with the Baha'i faith, and we had events and firesides, which are gatherings where people would come to learn about the Baha'i faith in our home. And we had 19-day feasts, which is a time when Baha'is every 19 days come together and talk about the affairs of the, of the community and so forth. So we hosted in our home every once in a while a 19-day feast. So I call myself a hybrid Baha'i in the sense that, that I was kind of both. And I hadn't declared, I hadn't decided to become a Baha'i until my brother Philip, who was the first of my father's sons to declare themselves as Baha'is. When he became a Baha'i, I wanted to know more. I, I really didn't think of myself as a Baha'i or a Catholic at that stage in my life. So I was like 14, 15 years old. I was very interested in, in sociology and, and, and various religions. I was, in fact, investigating Buddhism, which I found to be really wonderful. And uh, I was studying it. But I didn't consider myself a Buddhist or a Catholic or a Baha'i or any of these things. But I thought of myself as spiritual, and I was on my journey. So when he became, when my brother Phil became a Baha'i, I had to pause because... This was one of my brothers who I really had a great, I respected all my brothers, but he in particular. And and so I wanted to know why, you know, he had declared. And so one evening 
he was visiting from college. He went to school up in Los Angeles, and we were living still in San Diego. And he uh, was home, and I said, Phil, you know, can we talk? And he says, yeah. And I said, well, why did you become a Baha'i? So he told me, I can't remember exactly what he said, but my question to him was, well, what does Baha'u'llah say about life after death? For some reason, I had this fascination with the soul and is there a soul and what is the nature of the soul and what is the nature of death and that sort of thing. So he goes into my father's library and brings out a book called Gleanings, The Gleanings of Baha'u'llah. He says, Mark, let's sit down and read this. And so we sit down at the kitchen table and he starts reading. It had to be around seven in the evening or so. Maybe it was a little later, eight, nine o'clock in the evening when he started reading. And then all I remember is I felt this incredible weight lifted off my shoulders. I felt light like I could fly. And he closes the book and I look up and I look outside and the sun is beginning to, it's like dusk, and the sun is just rising. So he had been reading and talking with me all night long, and it didn't feel that way at all. And it was in that moment that I realized that such powerful words, spoken with such beauty and such, and such power, could only come from God. And it was at that moment that I recognized that Baha'u'llah, is a divine messenger of God. But it wasn't until a year later that I actually declared myself as a Baha'i because I didn't know that's what you needed to do. I just, I didn't think of myself as becoming something or not becoming something. I just was mesmerized and immersed in these words that were just uplifting and elevating and just opened new doors to my consciousness that I didn't even know were there. So a year later, I actually embraced the faith as my own. And and then a, a few years later, my mother declared, of course, as I just described, and uh, the rest is history. So I'm speaking with Mark Sisson, professor of film, television, and media arts in the School of Arts, Communication, and Social Science at Southwestern College in Chula Vista, California. We just listened to his story about his family and him accepting the Baha'i faith. Mark, uh, I understand that you worked in community theater. At what point in your life did theater become something you wanted to get involved with, and how did that happen? Yeah, it was kind of by default. You know, my dad, again, was into theater, and he had a beautiful bass voice, and he sang opera, and he was in theater himself. And in fact, my mother and father met. They both belonged to, it's called, a, I think, like a men's guild or a men's glee, or I think he called it. I can't remember the actual term. My mom belonged to a woman's glee. She was in St. Louis. She was down in Mississippi, and they met in East St. Louis. That's how they met. So my dad in particular, my mom to a certain degree, was into the arts. My dad was also into theater. So all my brothers were in one way or another involved with the arts. We all played a musical instrument and did theater. In fact, we had, as I was growing up at our home, you know, every so often, like two or three times in a month, the whole neighborhood would come to our home and we'd do plays and and sing songs and, and that sort of thing in our home. So I was kind of around music and 
performance, if you will, uh, all my life. Although I was, my brothers wouldn't admit to this, but I was a very shy kid. And my brothers were very verbose as my father was. And so my shyness didn't go over very well. So I had to try to overcome that. And so it was kind of part of our DNA in in a sense. And so my dad was in community theater. He performed at the Old Globe Theater, which is a prestigious theater here in San Diego. He did work with La Jolla Theater, as well as the Southeast Community Theater, which was community theater in Southeast San Diego, which is predominantly African-American community. My brothers were involved in that. And so that's how I got involved. Interestingly enough, my first paid job I directed a children's play. It was a paid job because it was part of like a community development project because of whatever little experience I had in theater. And because I was young myself, I was hired to do this. So I did that. And that was my first taste. And up until then, I didn't really think, although I loved music, I loved theater, I didn't think this was going to be my path. And I got my first taste of directing a stage play. And I thought it was marvelous. I thought it was great. So I wanted to put my hand at it. And then I was introduced to film and my brother had given me a eight millimeter camera. And that was a bit of an encouragement. And I tended to be the videographer of the family. I would set up the projector and show family films and so forth. So I, I just kind of fell into it, not really thinking about it as something that I would actually pursue as a career. I just enjoyed doing it. Around the time that I was graduating from high school and really started thinking seriously about, well, what am I going to do as a career? I thought doing something that integrated both the arts as well as the social sciences, because I was also interested in political science and education. In fact, I started off in college with an education degree. But I felt that I wanted somehow to integrate the arts in that process. I was never interested in pursuing the arts for the sake of art itself. Somehow I thought of the arts as an instrument by which to have an impact on the society in which I lived. So these both, as far back as I can remember, have always played some role in my life, involved in social services, in community development in one way or another, even being a member of the Boy Scouts, because the Boy Scouts in the neighborhood I lived in, many of the Boy Scouts, boys, I should say, were coming from very troubled families and very difficult circumstances. And so I was very, very much thinking about my neighborhood and my community and how I could contribute to its betterment and its growth and its development. And the arts was just a part of that. And I I didn't see it as just something for performance-wise, but something that really helped elevate the circumstances of my neighborhood. Again, like many things in my life, kind of a hybrid, a mix of things that brought me to pursue media. But it was never again, even when I was in college and studying it, it wasn't media for the sake of media. It was really thinking about it in the context of how can it be an instrument by which we can improve our circumstances as a community and as a population. And you worked in the film industry in L.A. for 10 years. Can you describe your work during this time period? 
Yeah, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in broadcast television from San Francisco State. I didn't want to move to L.A. Actually, L.A. was like the last place I wanted to move to. <laughs> but I felt I had to go there. And in fact, I had just taken six months off. I had been invited to travel throughout the South Pacific Islands after I graduated with my bachelor's degree at San Francisco State. After that trip, I was found myself back in San Diego with the intention of moving back to the Bay Area when a friend of mine who was living in Los Angeles said, Mark, what are you, what are you doing? You know, at the time, I was actually, my dad had gotten me a job selling cemetery property, <laughs> which was interesting. I told him that. He said, Mark, you need to be in L.A. This is where the work is. Come to L.A. So I did. I moved to Los Angeles, you know, started looking for work. I think my first job was as a receptionist at a B-rated talent agency. That lasted for a few days. <laughs> Didn't last very long. And then I started working for Norman Lear Productions. Actually, it was called Tandem Embassy. How were you able to get in? Through my friend. He was a casting director for Universal Studios, and he knew someone over at Tandem Embassy. And so they took a risk and said, hey, you know, come work for us. So I did. Just doing PA work, basically. And it was an entry job position, and I was a PA for them. So shows like The Jeffersons and One Day at a Time and Good Times, these were the shows that were being produced at the time. So I was working in that context, with the hope of you know, kind of working my way through and working my way up to being in production. At that time, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to be a director or a writer or a producer or a cinematographer. I didn't know much about the film industry, but I knew I wanted to be in it. So I tried my hand at a number of things. So finally, I, I got a job working as an electrician, working under a gaffer, which is a person responsible for lighting. I was always doing commercials and I started working my way up, you know, working as a camera operator eventually and part of a camera team. And and it was around that time that I thought I really want to start writing. And so I started writing scripts and decided at that time that it might be smart for me to go back to school. So I applied to UCLA and got into the UCLA Film School and then continued my work in the film industry, working for... Stephen Cannell Productions with the A-Team was one of the shows we did there. And, you know, working basically as crew on, on different projects. But my eye always was eventually wanting to work overseas and work as a, a documentarian and working on documentary films and so forth. So I knew all along that I didn't want to stay in Los Angeles, although I enjoyed the work that I was doing. It wasn't my goal. My goal ultimately was to work overseas, work in the industry overseas, and that probably meant working in documentary film, but also teaching and that sort of thing. So when the opportunity came for me to do that, 10 years later, I took that opportunity to do that. And so I went pioneering to Papua New Guinea and uh, got a job as director of educational television producing documentary films and producing educational films for tertiary and uh, high school education. And how long were you at Papua New Guinea? So I lived in Papua New Guinea for 11 years. 
L.A. was from 1979 to 1989, and then 89 to 2000 was Papua New Guinea. And so what was life like for you and work like for you in Papua New Guinea? Well, it was a dream for me. People say living the dream, that was for <laughs> sure it. I was doing everything I loved. I, I was serving the faith as a pioneer. Pioneers are people who dedicate and move to oftentimes to a foreign country. It could be also um, what is referred to as home from pioneering, where they dedicate their time and energy to the promotion of the faith and the progress of the faith and the progress of the communities in which they serve, either at the home front or on the international level. And so that's what I did in Papua New Guinea. But pioneers must become part of the life of the community and are not generally subsidized. And so I had to find work. Remember I said earlier that I had spent six months overseas in the Pacific Islands. And so I had met people there. And when a job opportunity came up working for the government of Papua New Guinea as a filmmaker in media productions, I applied for the job and got the job. And so that's what took me for the second time, actually, to Papua New Guinea this time as a pioneer and uh, working in the industry. So it was really just a beautiful job. I loved it. I loved living there. Very different, totally different universe of experiences. In fact, I tell people often that my understanding of what it means to be a human being, what it means even to be a Baha'i, was deeply shaped by my experience in Papua New Guinea. It was a challenging place to live on many, many levels. I oftentimes refer to Papua New Guinea as the last place on earth in the sense that it's on the far fringes of civilization. You know, there are people there that were still living as humanity lived uh, millions of years ago, virtually in the Stone Age. But you also had the cities and the people there who were living in the Cyber Age. So uh, literally in one country, you could see the whole spectrum of mankind's evolution, in a sense, from the Stone Age to the Cyber Age in one place. Uh, you know, I discovered our humanity there, in a sense. I learned about what was really important in life, that relationships between human beings is foundationally the most important development that can occur, and that everything serves that ultimately that purpose is our evolution as a global society, and that we can learn from one another about who we are and what our responsibilities are to one another in Papua New Guinea, where that really played out for me. Now, of course, that's true no matter where you live in the world, but for me, it really was a life-changing experience. Difficult to describe because it was so different from anything that I had experienced living here in the United States. What brought you back to the United States? Good question. Again, so you could imagine, I'm, I'm living what I considered living the life. And, and, and of course, I got married during that time. So my wife isn't from Papua New Guinea. She's actually from Malaysia. And so I got married and I had two small children. And my father passed away. Two things kind of contributed to this change, this moving back to the United States. One was... The job that I had as director of film and television education in Papua New Guinea 
needed to be localized. So I had been there for a number of years. The government, the education department, was happy to renew my contract. But I felt that that position in particular needed to be run and operated by Papua New Guinea. And, and of course, that was really ultimately the goal to begin with. So I saw this, this is before my father passed away, I saw this as an opportunity to now transition to doing something else. So I began to explore that. And in the midst of all of this, my father passed away. And so that brought me back to the United States. I had at the time no intention to remain in the U.S. I thought I would maybe either working in a different capacity in Papua New Guinea or work somewhere else in a different country altogether. And at that time, China was actually kind of on my on my radar. And I thought maybe that, you know, that would be a wonderful place to live. But there's an old saying, I think it's a Islamic saying, I believe I'm wrong about that, but it's, it's man plots and God plots and God is the best of plotters. Right? Mm-hmm. So I had some plans to go back overseas and I ended up coming to the U.S. and it turned out that I blinked and 20 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> and my kids grew up here and so forth. So, yeah, those were the circumstances around which I, which brought me back to the U.S. And Mark, I understand that you have worked with a number of U.N. agencies, including UNDP, UNICEF and the WHO, as well as the European Union. What did you do for those agencies? Yeah, so I was, again, I was employed by the Department of Education in Papua New Guinea, and I started my first kind of direct interaction with UNDP was was on behalf of the government of Papua New Guinea. The country officers would then call on me to work on various projects with them. In Papua New Guinea, you had the UNDP, you had UNICEF, the World Health Organization. So I did a, and these are all films, all focused on particular projects. I mean, I worked directly with UNDP and UNSF and so forth, but I wasn't employed directly by them. It was kind of through the government. And so in the case of UNDP, there were healthy living projects in which, you know, smoking sensation films and videos and radio programs and even theater programs were put together to help encourage populations to avoid the use of cigarettes, particularly women, clean water projects that were done to help communities think about how to use clean water and make sure that water is not polluted and that sort of thing. And what I loved about this kind of work was it really was shaped by the stakeholders themselves. I fundamentally worked as a consultant. I would go down, we'd, you know, talk to the community members about not only the content, but the, the manner in which was it was best to communicate these concepts and ideas to the population. And sometimes it would be a radio program. Sometimes it would be something that would be put on broadcast for national television I did a piece on AIDS, for example. Uh, at that time, AIDS was entering into the country and it was a, a great concern by the government. And so I produced a series of spots for that and the like. And so, yeah, that's how I was working with European Union, did a project with them and so forth. So, yeah, that's how that happened. 
So what is your work now, Mark? So now I, I've been teaching at South Person College for a while now. It's been about 17, 18 years. I teach film, television, and media arts. So I'm a professor here, tenured professor. I'm now at a stage, my son and daughter, my son is, is now married, and my daughter's, you know, they both are out of, out of the house, so we're empty nesters. And I'm at a transition point, to be honest with you, uh, now. I'm looking to, to get back into production again, although I teach from television production and, and theory and so forth. I haven't really been involved with, with production in a serious way in a while, so I'm looking at opening those doors. Yeah, so I would say I was in a, in a transitional stage in my life and I still feel young and vital and relevant so I'm hoping that that and and it's a very interesting time and on many levels for humanity and to be involved in media never before has there been such access to media as there is today by the generality of humanity and I think given my experience and my background and my perspective, I guess, I still feel that I that I can play a vital role in this process. So yeah, and, and as far as career, I will continue teaching because I love it. I enjoy teaching, but I'm also looking at opening some new, new doors. Along with that, I had the great privilege of working with a number of young, bright, and capable, creative people that are in the industry in the broadest sense, you know, those that are working in in Hollywood and are pitching story ideas and developing them. And I'm in conversation with many of these individuals, as well as just the discourse and the conversation around how media can contribute to the conversation about race and about gender and about equality and justice. There's some wonderful possibilities that that are before me and I'm looking into them now and exploring them basically so for those listening to this program mark what would you say is the guiding principle that directs you to your next opportunity you've touched on it a bit but yeah yeah I think well the guiding principle is service to humanity that is my purpose in life I think of a question that was asked the eldest son of Baha'u'llah, the center of the covenant of the Baha'i faith, uh, Abdul Baha. He was asked once, you know, who he was and what was his religion. And he said, his religion is service to humanity. And I think that really sums up what it means to be a Baha'i, is to serve mankind. And my goal has always been to bend whatever resources that have been, whatever talents I might have, to this end. That is what shapes the choices I make looking ahead. What projects I involve myself with have to, in one way or another, express that vision, that hope to be able to serve humanity and its best interest, as I understand it to be. And I know that an understanding what that best interest is involves consulting and talking to people and learning what their vision is for themselves and what their hopes and aspirations are and aligning those as I understand them with 
Baha'u'llah's vision for humanity, which is peace and security and justice for all humanity. But it has to be one in which every human being sees themselves as an agent of change. And if I can help facilitate that process, then I will have fulfilled my aspirations to be an, an agent of change. And so that is the guiding, my guiding light, if you will, my guiding principle that mankind is one and that we are all members of the same human family and that it is not division and dissension that will elevate the human spirit, but cooperation and collaboration and understanding and love that must drive us forward and that will, in the end, enable us to address all of the challenges which humanity faces from climate change to social justice, from food shortage to understanding uh, how the instruments of technology can be used for the betterment of mankind. All of those things and all the challenges that comes with it must be framed, if you will, are based on this understanding that we are one people, that mankind is one and that religion even serves that purpose, to unite us, to bind us together as one human family. Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, it was my, my pleasure. Thank you so much for you know creating the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark Sisson, who has worked in the film industry in L.A. for 10 years and worked on media projects in Papua New Guinea in support of UN projects there, and is now a tenured professor of film, television, and media arts at Southwestern College in Chula Vista, California. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
Open the door to your heart Sing, sing It will not last This moment Becomes the
shall cause the heart of every righteous man to throb in tune the verses of God that have been received by thee as intoned by them who have drawn nigh unto him that the sweetness of thy melody may kindle Grace vouchsafed unto him Must need sooner or later Exercise Its influence Upon his soul Entomb The verses of God That have been received by thee Just have abandoned the physical garment and have ascended to the spiritual world. May our love guide you. Them with the moon. 
most pure water and grant them to behold thy might. Cleanse them with the most pure water and grant them to behold thy splendor on the loftiest mount. Oh.